as, as we're making our way through Mark, you know, um, we're just, you know, I am uh, looking as, as we go through, you know, looking at those specific verses or, or, or passages where I feel like the Lord wants us to just kind of drill down and really, you know, look closely at it. And so today that is verse 34. It's the, the last verse that we read. That is the verse that we're going to focus on today. But before we do that, as I've done also in the past, I want to just just go through the verses that we read and, and just highlight a couple of things just so we're getting uh, the important points as we make our journey through the gospel. So as you noticed, if you're coming regularly, we're not teaching every single verse of Mark, but we are reading through every verse. And then the teaching part, again, you know, is highlighting certain aspects. So uh, let, let's just look at a few things. So verses one through six is where the, the, the chapter begins with Jesus. It says that he went to his own country. So he went to his own country. For us, that's like, what? That, where, where was his country? Um, it was actually Nazareth. It probably a better way for us today to read it would be that he went to his own city or he went to his own town. Um, so here we have Jesus going back to Nazareth. Remember, Jesus was uh, from there. He was born in Bethlehem, but he was brought up in Nazareth. And uh, he was even known as the Nazarene. But once his public ministry began, he moved out of Nazareth and he uh, set up his base in uh, Capernaum there on, on the Sea of Galilee. But now, so he takes a visit back to Nazareth. And there's a couple things that we see here. We see that uh, the, the people of the, the town, they had heard about him. You know, they, they had heard about their, um, you know, one of their own who had gone out and now was, you know, kind of making a name for himself is the way they probably would have thought about it. So, so he comes back to uh, the city and he begins to teach, but they were, um, you know, the, the familiarity was just, you know, they couldn't really accept that he was somebody extraordinary or unique. And so we see their response to him is, where did he get this? And, and what, what is this wisdom that he has? And, and then they say this, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. So it's like, wait, we know this guy. He, he can't be anybody that special because, well, after all, you know, we, we know his family. And so they, they were offended at Jesus. So there in, in Nazareth, he came back to bring a blessing to them. But as we go on and we see here, he ends up saying to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. And here's the great tragedy. Now he could do no many, uh, he could do no mighty work there. And he marveled at their unbelief. So Jesus comes back to his hometown, to Nazareth. He comes to bless them, but he's, he can't bless them because of their unbelief. It was their unbelief that prevented the blessing that he intended to bring. And, and of course, this is always true. Um, you know, Jesus comes and he, and he offers a blessing. 
I was thinking about how, you know, sometimes you might be talking to a friend or a family member or somebody and they're pouring out their woes and they're telling you about their struggles and their difficulties and, and, and all of that. And, you know, you might just look at them and say, well, look, I know the answer. I know, I know the solution to those, those problems. And, you know, if, of course, they, if knowing you're, you're a Christian, they probably say, oh, don't tell me it's Jesus. You know, no, come on now. Don't, don't, uh, uh, don't give me that stuff. Why not? It is Jesus. But what's the point? The point is, if they would just believe all of those concerns and burdens and all of that misery could be alleviated because that's what Jesus does. But people who reject Jesus are really, as the saying goes, they're cutting off their nose to spite their face. I mean, come on. You know, God just wants to bless. But that was the people of Nazareth. They, they couldn't be blessed the way God wanted to bless them, but it was because of their unbelief. Now, just another quick thing to note is we have a reference here to the brothers and sisters of Jesus. Jesus had siblings. Now, for some, that's like, oh, okay, that's great. Uh, but, but for others, because of the influence of Roman Catholicism on the, the culture even, for some people, that's a complete shock. Wait, what do you mean Jesus had brothers and sisters? Uh, because Roman Catholic doctrine is that Mary was a perpetual virgin. So she did not have any other kids. And Roman Catholic theologians would say, uh, well, these were maybe like the, they were like the half brothers of Jesus. They were, you know, the children of Joseph, but not of Mary. Uh, or they would say, well, these aren't really the brothers and sisters. They're really the cousins. It was probably, the word probably should be translated cousins. Uh, not so. The, the Greek word means brothers and sisters. And um, there's no reason except that Roman Catholic idea that Mary was a perpetual virgin, there's no reason to think that that was the case because the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible makes it clear here that he had brothers and sisters. So that's just a quick side note. Then uh, verses 7 through 13, where we have Jesus sending out the 12 on the mission. Uh, the one thing that I wanted to just remind us of here, Jesus sends them out. He gives them power over unclean spirits, and he also gives them power to heal. And so that's something that we can't forget. And I, I think that oftentimes we, we forget that there is a, uh, there's a supernatural component to everything that we believe and we're involved in. And when we go out with the gospel, we should also go out with the expectation that God is going to work with us and, and God's going to do miraculous things. You know, I read a lot of books and I listen to a lot of different people who are in church leadership and, and all of that. And, and sometimes I, I feel like we're so dependent on just, you know, what we can do. We're so dependent on what we can come up with. We're so dependent upon our our. Intellect. We're so dependent upon our ability to communicate. We're so dependent upon those things. And yes, those, I mean, we want to communicate well and we want to uh, do our best in presenting the truth. We want to do all of that. But we have to remember that there's another component here and that's called the Spirit of God. 
And that's called supernatural things. And that's called uh, miracles, healing, and deliverance. And, and that's the kind of stuff that we see here. We can't forget that in this day and age. And I was thinking practically, we should always keep in mind that when we have opportunities to share with people the truth, you know, we also have an opportunity to open the door for God to do something miraculous by just simply asking people if we can pray for them. Because as we pray for them, we are, we're calling upon the Lord to intervene in their lives. So let's just say you're having a conversation with a friend, a family member, whatever the case might be, and you're, you're telling them about Jesus and they're listening, but you know, they're not ready at this point to make any kind of a decision. And, and you just say, as, as everything winds down, you say, you know what? And you know, maybe something came up in the conversation. Maybe there's, you know, an issue, a sickness, or maybe there's some kind of problem. Say, hey, could we pray about that? Would you mind if I just prayed, uh, prayed for you with that thing? And you know what's interesting? Uh, people are, strangely, people are open to prayer. Even non-religious people are open to prayer. And when we pray, though, we are verbally, audibly inviting the Lord into the situation, and we're giving an opportunity for God to do something supernatural that those very people will be able to recognize because when that happens, they're like, oh my goodness, that's the thing that they prayed for me about. So these guys went out to preach, but they also went out with power and they went out with the expectation that it wasn't simply preaching, but that God was going to be with them showing his power through their lives as they went out. So just a quick thing to note from the verses there. Now, uh, verses 14, or as, as we kind of uh, read through 16. So verses 17 through 29 are um, dealing with the, uh, the, the actual, the, the murder really of John the Baptist. So here it's where Mark, you know, takes a little bit of a detour away from the historical, just the narrative. And he, it's like a parenthetical portion where he, because uh, Herod says about Jesus, oh, this is John the Baptist who's raised from the dead. So now Mark goes on and tells a story about the death of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was essentially murdered by uh, Herod at the instigation of Herod's wife, uh, Herodias. And so that is what is recorded in verses 17 through 29. And then we pick up again in verse 30. And I, I want to, as I said, I want to really focus our attention now today on verse 34. So as we see the background there, picking up in verse 30, um, so this is so this is where the story picks up. So Jesus sent them out, they went out and did those things, and now they've returned. And so they come back, the apostles, they gather to Jesus. And so they tell him, um, they tell him everything that, that they had been doing out on this mission that he sent them on. And so he said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. 
for there were many coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. So they come back, they're telling Jesus all that they had experienced as they had gone out at his sending and experienced you know, that great work of God. They come back, they're telling the story. Jesus says, all right, let, let's take some time off. Let, let's have a break. Let's get away from uh, the crowd. Let's go to a deserted place and let's rest a while. And, and I would imagine that they were all like, amen, Jesus, what a great idea. We never thought that you would say that, but let's go. And so that's what they do. They head off to a deserted place, but the people kind of see the direction they're going in and they're like, wait, Jesus, we we need you still. So, So they go on foot to the place where Jesus and the disciples arise and uh, arrive. And, and so as they, as they get there, um, the crowd is already there. And here it is, verse 34. And Jesus, when he came out, came out of the boat, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them. Now, I'm putting myself in the place of those other guys. And this is one of those moments where you're like, oh, come on, Jesus, please don't know. Just, we need a break. But Jesus is, he's moved with compassion. And, and he can't, as much as he probably needed that break as well, uh, he couldn't walk away from this crowd of people because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. He saw that their lives were tattered and they were beaten and bruised and they were troubled. And all of that (coughs) moved him to then just carry on ministering to them. And and so we see here in Jesus, and you know, this has been often our, our focus as we go through Mark, we keep coming back to Jesus and rightfully so, this is uh, the gospel. But, but we want to look at Jesus. And as we look at Jesus, we're looking at God. We're seeing what God is like. So we see with Jesus that he is the compassionate savior. Now, you know, you can search high and low in the world today, and you can go back in ancient times as far as you want. You're not going to find any representation of a God like this. Compassion was not the, um, it wasn't the nature of, of the ancient gods, the false gods. Even if you look in the various religions today, uh, you're not going to find that. But that's exactly what we find with the Lord. And remember that Jesus is the embodiment of the Father. So he's here showing us basically what God is like. God is a God of compassion. He's a God of compassion. So if when we think of God and his primary attitude towards sinners, we think of anger, wrath, and judgment, we are seriously mistaken. That, that's the wrong view of God. That's the, that's the wrong understanding of God. But, but so often that's how people do think of God. And sometimes we as Christians are even promoting that view. But listen, these are the facts. Right thinking about God 
is that his predominant attitude towards sinners is an attitude of love, mercy, and compassion. That's the biblical picture of God. And when I say his attitude towards sinners, that means his attitude toward everybody because we're all sinners. But, but that's how we need to think of God ourselves. That's how we need to portray God. But again, quite often, um, the people who claim to know God are either directly or indirectly uh, presenting him more with, with a picture of anger and wrath and judgment than of grace and mercy and love and compassion. And, and that's a problem. And like I said, you, you even see this with Christians. So this past week, you know, there, uh, just one example that comes to mind. Uh, there's, a, there's a well-known young lady who's a, a Christian artist who's gained some traction in the culture. She's a musician, you know. And um, she recently was invited on to um, the, El- the Ellen Show. And she went on and she sang and, you know, she got some pushback and some criticism because, you know, Ellen, of course, is uh, a lesbian. And so, you know, what is this girl thinking going on that show and so forth? So, but, you know, she went on there and she talked about Jesus. And so God bless her. That's great. But a little bit later, she was, she had an interview with somebody and they asked her about, uh, you know, homosexuality, is it a sin or not? And, and she, she waffled on that. She didn't really give, you know, what would have been the, the best or the right or the, or the biblical answer. And, um, you know, most, most voices coming from the church were condemning her. Like, you know, this... You know, she had her opportunity and she blew it and she denied God and we ought to basically just, um, you know, pull all of our support and, you know, all, all, all of that kind of stuff. A, f- a few voices out there were saying, hey, you know, why don't we just instead of, instead of taking that attitude, why don't we just try to come alongside and maybe, you know, help her out a little bit. She's only 27 years old. I mean, my goodness, you know, let's, let's help her. Maybe she just needs to be instructed. Maybe she just needs to you know, know more, more clearly what the scriptures say. And maybe next time she'll be better at articulating that truth. So the two different responses kind of show the two different attitudes that people have in regard to how God looks at our failures. And man, you know, think of, thank God this is written in the Bible. I I mean, think of Peter. Peter denied publicly. Now, this guy's an apostle. This guy's with Jesus three years, day and night. He's on the Mount of Transfiguration. He sees, uh, you know, Moses and Elijah and all of this stuff. But at the end, before Jesus is crucified, what does Peter do? He says, I I don't know Jesus. Nope, sorry. You got the wrong guy. Mm -mm, I don't know him. And then at a certain point, remember, he finally just swears like, you know, may God curse me if I'm not telling the truth. But he wasn't telling the truth. He did know Jesus. But what did Jesus do later? Well, Jesus had compassion on Peter, didn't he? And he didn't disregard Peter or discard Peter. He didn't, uh, you know, just cast him away. He brought him back in. 
and he restored him, and then he sent him out to do the mission again. And Jesus showed us right there, that's how we, that's how we need to approach things. But we're so quick, especially it seems like in these days, we're so quick to condemn, we're so quick to judge, we're so quick to write people off if they you know, fail in some way. That is not the heart of God. That is not the God that we see in the Bible. The God we see in the Bible is a God of compassion. And Jesus, like I said, he manifests that for us here. Now, some people today, people are confused. Even some people in the church are confused. Some people say, well, you know, the God of the Old Testament, that's the God of wrath and anger and judgment. And Jesus, you know, he's, of course, you know, the God of the New Testament is a God of love and grace and mercy. And so we need to just disengage from the Old Testament uh, one well-known preacher today says we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament and we just need to stick with the New Testament. And listen, uh, Jesus is the physical manifestation of the God of the Old Testament. He's God the Son. So we can't unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. But we don't need to because if we just read the Old Testament more clearly, we would realize that the revelation of God in the Old Testament is not a God of anger, wrath, and, mer- and uh, judgment. It, it is, it comes to us in the pages of the Old Testament that God is a God of compassion. Listen to God's self-description uh, given to Moses and to Israel. Moses at a certain point, he says, he says Lord, I wanna, I wanna see you just in all your glory. So Moses has had a relationship with God. He's had an encounter with God, but he says, Lord, I want to see you with just absolute clarity, no filter. I'm going to, I'm going to just see you as who you are. And God basically says, well, Moses, that's impossible because you die if, if you, you know, no one can see me and live, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock and I'm going to pass by and I'll let you see the glory that, that, follows afterward. And, and so as that occurs, the Lord himself, he declares his name. And in doing so, he's declaring his nature. So in Exodus 34, this is what we read. The Lord, which is Yahweh, uh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. So that's God's self-revelation. How does he reveal himself? He says that I'm compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. You see what happens, people misread the Old Testament and they just focus in on those places where God talks about wrath and judgment, but they fail to realize that that those things only come after sometimes hundreds of years of God pleading with people to repent. And after a couple hundred years, it's like, okay, Finally, we got to bring some judgment here. But judgment is never God's first move toward a person. God's first move is always a merciful one because that's God's heart. The the Lord even says through the prophet Ezekiel, he says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God takes no pleasure in judging people. He would prefer not to judge people because he, his, like I'm saying here, his predominant attitude towards sinners is an attitude of love, mercy, and compassion. Uh, the psalmist picked this up in Psalm 103, and this is what he wrote. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. 
He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Psalm 103. Read it later and highlight it because you'll want to go back to that over and over again. But you see, this is the biblical picture. And then Jesus, of course, who is, as I said, you know, the name Jesus means Yahweh is the Savior. Why is he named that? Because that's who he is. He's God. He's the God of the Old Testament. He's God the Son who comes, not God the Father. He's God the Son who comes, and he comes and shows us his heart towards sinners. And we see here that it is a heart of compassion. And notice the text says, when Jesus saw this multitude of of beaten and bruised, beat up people, it says that he was moved with compassion. So that's a phrase that's used to to speak of, of the these times when Jesus would encounter people in difficulty. It's used in reference to a multitude three times. And then it's also used in regard to individuals. On one occasion, it's a leper who comes to Jesus. Uh, Lord, if you're willing, would you, would you cleanse me? Jesus had compassion on him or he, he looked, uh, he was moved with compassion. Uh, blind men came asking, you know, to be Uh, healed of their blindness. Jesus was moved with compassion. Uh, A widow, her son had died and they they were taking him out to bury him. And Jesus is there as the funeral procession is passing by and Jesus sees the plight of this widow and it says he was moved with compassion toward her and he raised her son from the dead and gave her, gave him back to her. And so, so we see that this is the posture of Jesus when it comes to people who are suffering. People who are suffering as victims of sin from, you know, maybe, maybe others have uh, victimized them, but, but also just people who's, who, who have brought their problems on themselves because of sin. His heart is a heart of Compassion, So he's moved with compassion. And it's a picture of him actually being physically um, affected by what he sees with these people. We've all had that, I think, probably. Unless there's a person here that just has actually zero uh, feelings, which I'm <laughs> thinking not the case. Um, you know, we all know what that's like. You know, you see a situation... And, you know, you just suddenly you have that feeling of just it's like in your in your gut. You know, we talk about sometimes we see something that it's like it's like a punch in the gut. And, you know, you see some a a person, you see their plight and it's just like, oh, it just hits you Uh, physically. It it affects you. And that's the, the terminology that's used here. In the older translations of the Bible, it refers to things like the bowels of mercy. 
Now, you know, your bowels, you know what your bowels are, right? We know what irritable bowel syndrome is, so we know what bowels are. Why would they say bowels of mercy? Well, for this very reason, because of the, of the way we feel uh, in the ancient's mind, that was the center of emotion. Must be there because you feel that compassion there. And so what's being described here by Mark is that Jesus was actually like doubled over with compassion for people. Compassion, according to Webster's Dictionary, is this sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with a desire to alleviate it. So it is a sympathetic consciousness of the, of the distress of others, but it's not just looking at someone and saying, oh my gosh, that's horrible. It's, oh my gosh, that's horrible. And how can I help them? And I'm going to help them. Jesus was compassionate because he looked at them and felt all of that, but then said, I've, I've got to do something about this. And of course, we go now and we see what he did. He began to teach them about God. But I want to look for a minute at this. Um, oh, b- before we do that, looking at the, the sheep and the shepherd. Um, let me, one other place where, it, where we read about um, being moved with compassion. The one other place we read about it, and this is important to our understanding of who God has compassion on, because sometimes we, we can even think, well, yeah, you know, I can understand God having compassion on people that have been hurt by others or people whose problems have been brought about by, you know, something somebody else has done to them. I can, I can understand that. But for the person who's brought their trouble upon themselves, um, I, it's hard to see that God would have compassion on that. Maybe even you yourself feel that way. You feel like, well, you know what? I deserve what I'm getting. And maybe you do deserve what you're getting. But you know what? God doesn't think that about you. God has compassion even on you. See, for us sometimes, uh, we think this and so we think God thinks this. You know, you see somebody who's just basically made a mess out of their life through really bad choices and things like that. And you say, hey, buddy, you know, that's just, you, you reaped it and now you're sowing, or you sowed it and now you're reaping it. Or you made your bed, now you got to lie in it. You know what? God doesn't say that. And in the story of the prodigal son, remember that story? It's a story that Jesus tells to illustrate the heart of God toward those who go astray. Now, remember the prodigal son, this guy brought all of his trouble upon himself because he didn't really appreciate what he had with his dad. He didn't really care about his dad. He really cared just about himself and he wanted his inheritance. And he said, man, I'm out of here, dad. Give me my inheritance and adios. And he took off. And he went out and we're, we're told in the story, Jesus is telling the story, that he spent all of his money on riotous living and all of this kind of stuff. And finally he finds himself flat broke. And, you know, after living in the mud, he finally decides, you know, my, my father's, you know, the servants have it better off than I do. So he's going to go back. And he's really going back because things didn't work out like he thought. And so as he's coming back, this is what Jesus said. 
and his father saw him from a distance and was moved with compassion. See, when his father saw him coming home, he was moved with compassion. Now, he had a brother too. His brother wasn't so compassionate. His brother's like, what do you mean you're gonna give him a party? That guy shouldn't even be part of the family anymore. You know, he left. That, that's the attitude of the brother is sometimes the, the attitude that we have toward people in, that are you know, sinners that have messed up their lives because of sin. We kind of think of it like that. No, let them, just let them live with it. You know, that they, this is, they brought it on themselves. But that's not the heart of God. God has compassion, even upon those that have brought the misery upon themselves through their own sin. Now, Jesus looked at them as sheep without a shepherd. Now, that's, that's very meaningful. I mean, it's, you know, obviously very well understood in the context in which it was spoken. People understood back then in, in that culture, and even today in that culture, people understand uh, what, what sheep without a shepherd are like. Basically, sheep without a shepherd are, are not doing well. That's the idea. Because sheep are really dependent on the shepherd for their welfare and for their safety. So when Jesus looked at them as sheep without a shepherd, he's looking at people who are in bad, bad shape. That's just really the idea. But just really quickly, a couple of things about sheep. Um, Sheep don't have strong homing instincts, so they're easily lost. Uh, Sheep have no defensive skills, and so they are easy prey. Um, sheep don't really think independently. They kind of just follow each other. So if one decides to go, you know, throw himself over a cliff, they're all going to just follow suit and go with them. And those are just, you know, certain things about sheep that are realities. It's no accident that the Bible uh, often refers to us as sheep. You think of all the animals that, you know, we we could have been likened to. but the point with sheep is not that they're stupid, but that they're, um, they're, they're helpless really to uh, take care of themselves. They need the shepherd. That's the point. So Jesus sees them like a neglected flock. They're sheep without a shepherd. Now, in the Bible... God is referred to as a shepherd at least seven times. And probably the the most well-known of those seven times are, number one, Psalm 23. How many of you know Psalm 23? Psalm 23 says, it begins with these words, the Lord is my shepherd. So that's probably the most well-known. But John 10 as well, because Jesus says of himself, he says, I am the good shepherd. And then there's one other passage in uh, Hebrews 13, verse 20, that making reference to Jesus speaks of him as the great shepherd of the sheep. But, But let's think about that for a minute. Now, remember also that Psalm 23 is a Psalm of David. David is a shepherd. Now, 
what I know about sheep, I know from reading articles or, you know, maybe I've had a conversation with somebody who tends to sheep. And so, you, you know, you pick up a few little bits and pieces here and there, some, you know, interesting things. But, you know, the shepherd really knows sheep. And, and you talk to a shepherd and they can tell you fascinating little things that you would never even be able to imagine uh, about sheep. So David is that guy. David is a shepherd. He knows everything about sheep. And he knows what sheep need and how they're going to be best taken care of. And David says, the Lord is my shepherd. You see, David is describing God in a way that he understands like very few people understand, because he himself is in that position of being a shepherd. And what does he say about the Lord being a shepherd? Just a few things. He says, uh, first of all, he says, because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, which is an older way of just saying, because the Lord is my shepherd, I I will not lack anything. I'm going to be completely provided for. I'm going to be taken care of. And and I'm not going to, there's there's not going to be any lack. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then it goes on, and I'm not going to quote the whole psalm, uh, but he uh, um, brings me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. You see, a shepherd knows that those are things that sheep have to be led to, that sheep are easily agitated. And so they've got to be brought to a place where they can rest. That, that sheep need water but won't drink water if it's running water, if it's flowing, if it's a creek or a river. Uh, they're, they're frightened by that. So they, they will just not drink if that's the case. So the shepherd is going to lead them to the place where they will drink and be nourished. And then David goes on, he says, he leads me. And that's so much of that psalm is really talking about because the Lord is my shepherd, he's going to lead me and I can, I can just be confident in that. He goes on, he talks about, he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He anoints my head with oil, my cup overflows. And then he says this, he said, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He knows that goodness and mercy are with him. Why? Because the Lord is his shepherd. So Jesus, the one that we're reading about here, who looks at the people and says uh, that he has compassion on them, Jesus takes to himself the the title of shepherd. So when when Jesus said in John chapter 10, when he says, I am the good shepherd, everybody that heard him what did they think of immediately? They thought of Psalm 23. All, all, all the Israelites knew Psalm 23. It was one of those things they would have learned from the time they were little kids. And Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The one that David wrote about, the Lord is my shepherd, that's me. And then he said this, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. You see, this is the ultimate demonstration of... Uh, the goodness of a shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. The good shepherd loves the sheep so much that he will put himself in harm's way rather than let the sheep be harmed. 
Now in the passage, Jesus is contrasting himself as the good shepherd with the bad shepherds who were over the people at the time. And he refers to them as a hireling or hirelings. And he says about the hireling, the hireling doesn't care about the sheep because the sheep don't belong to them. See, the hireling is just a guy who needed a job and decided, okay, well, I guess I'll take care of these sheep, but I don't really care about them. And if they get carried off by a lion or a bear, that's their problem. I'm not gonna go chasing after that. Let them go. Oh, they fall in the river. That's their problem. Just, I'm not gonna jump in and try to save them. That's the attitude of the hireling. Jesus said, he's a good shepherd. He gives his life. That's like the ultimate uh, demonstration of his goodness as the good shepherd. And he goes on there and he talks about how my sheep hear my voice. I know them, they follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. You know, in, in the Middle East and even today, the shepherds will tell you that the sheep uh, are very uh, sharp when it comes to, they know the shepherd's voice. And they are so able to sense any kind of difference in tone that a person even trying to imitate the shepherd, uh, they will not respond. They know the shepherd's voice. And so Jesus is the good shepherd. And then, as I said in Hebrews, he's referred to as the great shepherd of the sheep. So the main point that I want to leave us with today is we have a compassionate shepherd who is committed to taking care of us and leading us and guiding us through life. And because we have a compassionate shepherd, we can know that goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life. And we can know that even when we go astray, even when we mess up, even when we say the wrong thing publicly, even if we at some time under duress said, well, I don't, I don't really even know Jesus. That the attitude of the shepherd is one of compassion. Again, yes, of course he's compassionate on those who deserve compassion. Obviously he is. But you know, here's the, the, the really crazy thing is he's compassionate even on the ones that don't deserve it. That's what mercy is. That's what grace is. See, because we would look at certain people and say, no, no compassion for them. Because I wouldn't have compassion on them. But God does. God has compassion. And we need to remember that. Because there, you know, there might come a time in life, I, I have found this. You don't appreciate grace fully until you need it. You know, as long as I don't see myself as really needing grace, I, you know, grace is great, but you know, that's for those losers out there. You know, I'm actually okay. But you know, the moment you need grace, man, you really start to appreciate it. Well, Jesus is the compassionate shepherd. And so he has compassion on them. And what does he do? He just, he begins to teach them. He begins to bring them under the care of the good shepherd. Now, Jesus, the great shepherd, we we see he has compassion on the wayward, but let's be clear about this. 
he does call us to repent. So with, with the sheep that go astray, he doesn't let them keep going astray. He, he brings them back into the fold. And the gospel goes out. Now, you know, there's a lot of confusion about this today. And people are saying this kind of stuff all the time now. They're saying, hey, God loves us unconditionally. God loves you no matter what. So man, don't worry about it. Just keep doing what you're doing and it's all good. And man, God loves you. I read yesterday somewhere, uh, you know, somebody was talking about talking to a person who was struggling with uh, same-sex attraction and uh, this person was saying, you know, when I talk to somebody that's struggling with same-sex attraction, I say, man, don't struggle any longer. God loves you just the way you are. He made you just the way you are. It's all good. Just enjoy God's love. It's unconditional. In other words, hey, just keep doing that. It's, it's okay. No, no, that's not the message. Yes, God loves you. He loves you right where you're at, but he's not going to leave you where you're at. And that's what repentance is. He's, he's calling you out of those kinds of things. And that's just one, I'm just using that example because that's the one I, I read about yesterday. But listen, he calls us to repent. And so that means to turn to him from everyone and everything else that has or would keep us from following and serving him. That, that's what he requires. If we're gonna be his sheep, then the shepherd is, he's gonna, he's gonna bring us under his care. And he knows what's best for us. Now, his compassion for all sinners, and remember, when I say all sinners, I'm just talking about everybody, because that's everyone. His compassion for all sinners brings with it an invitation to come receive forgiveness and a new life in the spirit. But let's not forget this. There's also the reality that the call unheeded could one day be withdrawn. See, that, there's, there's two sides to this coin and we can't forget that. And we read about it in the passage because remember, Jesus sent the, them out <coughs> and to those places that rejected their message, what did Jesus say? He said, when you leave, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And he said, because I'm telling you that on the day of judgment, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for that city. Well, that's heavy. But, but it just reminds us that, you know, this is not something that we can toy around with. This isn't something that we can just play fast and loose with. This, this thing of salvation, this invitation that is extended to us to come and receive the mercy of God. Um, if the call goes unheeded, one day it could be withdrawn. Now, we don't know when that is, but, but this is what it leaves us with. It leaves us with the sense that, you know, I need to respond now. I, I can't delay. And I want to close with this from the 95th Psalm, which basically just expresses that very thing. It says, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. <coughs> Here it is. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. The good shepherd sees the beaten, 
battered, scattered sheep and has compassion, but says, come, come under my care. Come under my leading, come under my provision, come under my protective uh, protection. But, but this is, we, we have got to do that. We can't, we can't think that we can stay out there wandering off on our own and just anytime we decide we're gonna, well, then I'll, you know, then I'll get back there. Well, the Bible says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. That's the natural tendency. You, you're you're gonna keep drifting further and further. But the spirit of God calls you to come back. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So we have a compassionate shepherd. And anyone who, seriously, anyone who says, well, I don't, you know, I don't want Jesus to be my shepherd. Why? Well, don't you wanna be blessed? Don't you want to know uh, contentment in life and peace and joy? And don't you want to have confidence about what's up ahead, what the future holds? We know the future holds for all of us at some point that we're going to die. That's inescapable. And only Jesus and the scriptures tell us what happens after that. And of course, uh, the, the scriptures tell us that goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I want that. And I hope you want that too. And guess what? God wants that for you. And that's why, even though we've all sinned, that he has come as that great shepherd of the sheep and given his life so he could bring us back into the fold so we could all say, the Lord is my shepherd. So Lord, we thank you that that is just the wonderful reality that, that you are the great shepherd of the sheep. And Lord, everything that's implied in that, Lord, your care, your concern, your love, your provision, your protection, your promises, all of it, it's all wrapped up in that and how we thank you for that. And Lord, I would just pray for those with us today. Lord, if there's a single person here, a person listening, a person watching that has yet to come under your care as the good shepherd. Oh Lord, may they do so today. May they not harden their heart, but may they respond and enter into that beautiful place where there are those green pastures and the still waters and the paths of righteousness. And at the end of the road, the house of the Lord forever. Do that work in people's hearts that will bring them to that place. And Lord, for those of us that have come under your care, Lord, how we thank you. And may we just know even more today than we knew before about your compassion and your kindness. Teach us that over and over again, Lord. May we be uh, continually the recipients and may we also be those that lavish that upon others, just as you lavish your love upon us. Amen.